0: Thank you for tuning in to the Grace Way Sermon Cast. Grace Way is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor, so grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you would, to join me. In the New Testament book of Matthew, uh, the first book of, uh, of the New Testament. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 4 in just a minute. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be dealing with this basic question here at our church. And this is the question here. When you strip everything else away, when you strip everything else away, what is the core of Graceway? What is at the core of who we are? What is at the core of what we do and what we're about and what is at the core of where we are headed as a church? Now, given the number of people in the room, when we ask a question like that, there's probably going to be a lot of different opinions and a lot of different angles on how we would interpret that question. Um, so, for instance, and when I say that, when I ask what is our church here for, what are we supposed to do, and what are we really about, we may have some general ideas, but some of those general ideas may be different. We may have different ideas of what the church is here for. It's kind of like if I use the, this just like, let's play some free word association for just a moment. For instance, if I were to say Bernie Sanders supporter, what pops into your head? Now I can already see by facial expressions, I can already see what's popping into your head. And you're like, oh no, he did not go there in an election year. All right, so let's go to the other side. What if I were to say Donald Trump supporter? All right, we get different things pop into our minds. You can see in our faces. If I were to say such a word like vegan, what pops into your mind? Uh, What if I were to say Louisville fan? I can tell there, all right? I, uh, if I were to say Duke fan, right? Now you probably feel sorry for me because they've lost three in a row, but they'll probably move up in the polls. But anyway, uh, what image do you get when I say the word NASCAR fan? All right? Yeah, okay. we can. Yeah, it's a guttural response, man. The spirit just moved there, brother. When I say Star Wars, what image pops into your head? Is it like old school Star Wars, like Luke and Leia? Or new school, like Ray and Kylo? All right? Does, what, what, pops into your, what pops into your mind there. Or maybe you're just evil Invader pops into your head. I don't know what it is. But now what if I were to say Boomer? What pops into your head? Or if I were to say Millennial? We get different ideas and we get different images that pop into our head. And probably if we were to go through and start writing those things down and we shared our answers, there'd be different things pop into our minds because we'll find out we're different people with different mindsets, different ways of life, and God made us all different. We should probably celebrate that, shouldn't we? But there's one place that we should all be alike. If I were to say the word Christian, what pops into your mind? How would you define a Christian? And I would say that's probably the one that's going to get the most differences today. Matter of fact, Bible teacher Andy Stanley, he says this, if you ask 10 different people, you're going to get nine different answers, at least here in America, of what is a Christian. If you stop people on the street and ask them, are you a Christian? Somebody will probably say yes, Somebody will probably say, well, yes, but let me qualify it for you. Or they may say, no, I'm not a Christian, but let me qualify it for you here and tell you why I'm not or what's going on. And some will say, yes, I am, and they'll want to qualify what they mean. Some in here, right in this room, would probably say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and here's why I'm a Christian. Because there was a point in your life when you prayed and you asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart and be the Savior of your life, and you put your faith in him to be your eternal hope and security. Some of you might say, well, I did that by walking an aisle. Or I did that at my home. I did that watching, watching an evangelistic crusade or something like that. But you had a time in your life, and that's what makes me a Christian. Some of you might say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. I've just, I was raised in a Christian home. My grandma took me to church every year. And she made sure that I went to every VBS in every church in the city every summer. By the way, if you, if you grew up that way, going to every church's VBS, that just means your parents wanted babysitting for the summer. Okay, <laughs> By the way. Okay? Some of you, and you may be watching or listening, might even say, No, I'm not a Christian. And I'll tell you why. And you may sound a little something like this guy that I read this week on social media. He says, Christians are judgmental, homophobic moralists who think that they're the only ones that are going to heaven, and they secretly relish the fact that everybody that's not like them is going to hell. And some of you might be sitting here right now saying, I've been accused of that actually. Or that might be the way my neighbors are feeling about me. And the truth is, there's a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. See, the interesting thing about this debate over what is a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian, is the early disciples never had that debate because they never called themselves Christians. They never took that label of being a Christian. That was actually a point of insult. It was a derogatory insult that came to them in the book of Acts in the city of Antioch. So what did the early followers of Jesus call themselves? What did they label themselves as? They labeled themselves merely as disciples. Matter of fact, in the New Testament alone, you only see the word Christian three times in Scripture. And just about every single time you see it, it is somebody calling them that as an insult. But you do see the word disciple mentioned 281 times in the New Testament to describe followers of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. A disciple is a far more accurate description and definition of what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. Because I can be a Christian just by having an ideology. But if I'm going to be a disciple, it's going to cost something and it's going to require something of me. It's going to require action. See, I can be static and non-movable as a Christian. But as a disciple, I cannot sit still. Being a disciple compels me to action. And I believe that it's important for us to understand that Christian and disciple do not necessarily mean the same things. Because Christian has come to mean, and for some people can define, a state of mind or ideology when a disciple means being in a state of action. Or in other words, the concept of a disciple exposes the fact that many who claim to be Christians today are not actually living as disciples of Jesus. There are a lot of people today who would say, oh yes, I'm a Christian. But then when you start asking them about what it means to be a disciple, they don't want to have anything to do with that. No, I don't want to be a zealot, and I don't want to be overly religious or anything like that. But you see, to follow Jesus Christ is a call to follow him and die, die to ourself. It's not a passive call. It's an active call that requires everything of us. It requires we give up everything of us to everything that he will make us. And so with that understanding, let's look at Matthew chapter four, verse number 18, as Jesus calls his very first disciples. And beginning in verse number 18 and reading through verse number 22 this morning, it says this, and Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee He saw two brothers, Simon and Peter. Uh, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, or from thence, he saw uh, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father, And they followed him as well. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak through your word. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that it would be your word that goes forth, not my own. I pray today that you would open our hearts, our minds, our hearts, and our spirit to what you have for us today. May we hear your truth and may we respond to it in kind. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So here's the call of Jesus. He calls his first four disciples, and what we know about his disciples is that a lot of them were just blue collar guys. We had a fisherman. We had four fishermen. We later on will get a tax collector who's basically an IRS agent. Later on we'll get a zealot who actually, in our terms today, our lingo, Peter uh, was probably not. Uh, yeah, Peter was probably a uh, a terrorist. He was kind of one who wanted to overthrow the government a lot, and he was fighting against that. So you had a basically you had a Republican and a terrorist in the same in the same group of friends here, okay? Now, don't tell me that Democrats and Republicans can't get along in church, okay? So anyway, you have fishermen, and then we see another word in here, it says straightway or immediately. Immediately they left, and we're gonna talk about that here in just a minute. But you know what? When I, how many of you, first of all, by show of hands, how many of you have read that passage, you've heard this story before? You've heard fishers of men. You've heard about how the fishers came and he called his disciples and they said, he said, hey, come follow me and they come follow him. Okay, I've heard this since I was a kid. I've grown up in church my whole life. So I've had it flannel graphed. I've had it on coloring sheets. I've had it with like puppet ministry. I've had this story given to me a million times and it always ends the same way. And there's nothing wrong with this. But as a kid, here's, what I, here's the way I pictured it. Jesus shows up in a white robe and a blue Miss America sash with his blonde hair flowing in the wind and he's got these fishermen. He says, hey, follow me and by some force of of nature and God, a tractor beam just shows up and starts drawing them and they're like, yes, master, we will follow you. Like they've just been in this trance or something. And that's just how it goes. But as you get older, you're thinking, how does this make sense? This guy that they don't really know very well, we're not giving much background as to how much they know about Jesus. He shows up And yes, he's in his rabbinical clothes because he's a rabbi at this point. And he says, follow me to James and John, Peter and Andrew. He says, follow me. And it says, not after thinking about it, not after going home and making sure that everything is okay. Not checking with dad, Zebedee, who's in the boat and says, hey, dad, can I go follow this guy who's just asked me to follow him? And I don't know where we're going, but let me, you know, and Zebedee's like, well, son, I told you not to talk to strangers and all that stuff. None of that takes place. This is immediately they drop their nets. They dropped everything. They leave their boat. They leave their dad and they follow him. That seems a little odd, right? Why would they do this immediately? Well, to understand this, we have to kind of see the radical things that took place in what, what's taking place as Jesus calls him. And to understand that, you got to go back to the way that boys were trained back in the days of Jesus. You see, at five years old, every Jewish boy was enrolled in Torah kindergarten. They were all put into the Torah school. Every Jewish boy, sorry girls, you were not allowed to go at that time, but boys went to Torah school. And their responsibility was to learn huge portions of Scripture from the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of the law. And on the very first day of Torah school, they would pull every five-year-old up in this amazing ceremony as one of the, Levi, or as one of the rabbis and priests are reading the book of Genesis. They line each boy up and they put one drop of honey on their tongue. And the sweetness of that honey, for the very first time, for most of those poor boys, they had never tasted sweetness before. There was no candy. There were no grandparents pulling them over at the gas station saying, pick out whatever candy you want. There was no trick-or-treat at that point. They had never tasted sweetness before. And the imagery to this was powerful. That as you're hearing the word of God for the first time in your life, and you're you're feeling that sweetness upon your tongue and getting that sensation, it is correlating with you. The word of God shall be sweet to your soul. That's beautiful. I love. We should, do that we should do that for all of our kids, man. As they come into Grace Boy, kids, just drop some honey. By the way, whoever brought the donuts and sugared up the kids in Sunday school that I just taught? You need some extra Jesus this morning. That's all I'm saying. All right? <laughs> extra Jesus. That's all I'm saying. So maybe you're thinking, if you've worked with kids, you're like, no, don't sugar them up. But, it, you know, it gives them this idea that, that the, word is, the word is sweet. So from five years old to ten years old, every Jewish boy went off to Torah school, and they learned big passages of the law of God. At 10 years old, they would weed some of them out. Some of them had shown by that time that they weren't very good students and stuff like that, and so they were sent on back home, and they didn't make the cut. They were sent on back home, and they started to, to learn dad's, dad's family business and stuff like that. So at 10, you were able to, to learn again for another seven years, and then you went on to learn the rest of the Old Testament, Joshua through Malachi. Malachi. And you learn that, and at 17, you were considered to be a graduate of the Torah school at that point. And you were given the opportunity, if you wanted to go on and make a career out of studying Scripture, and you wanted to become a rabbi or a priest yourself, you could then go and apply to one of the rabbis there to become a Talmud or a disciple. And so in order for you to become a Talmud or to become a disciple of one of the rabbis, you had to identify which one you wanted to follow and signify that by going and sitting down at the feet of that rabbi. And that would tell the rabbi, I am applying to be your disciple, and I want to follow you. I want to mimic you. I want to do everything that you say. And for that rabbi, at that moment, what he would do is put them through a whole bunch of questions and a bunch of tests to make sure that they qualified in their mind. Now, the rabbis at this point could be really selective because... This was the job to have at this point. Because your other job was to be a farmer or a fisherman or to be a carpenter or to be something else blue-collar. There weren't professional athletes, there weren't YouTube stars, there weren't social media moguls, there weren't any of that. To be a rabbi meant you had you were very respected and you were very revered and you made some you made some money in doing this as well. So this is the job that they wanted. Every kid had like rabbi playing cards that they dealt with. They didn't have baseball cards or anything. They had like rabbi cards. I got Rabbi Galmalel, and I got Rabbi Hillel, and all these things. And so this is the job they wanted. So they could be very selective because they couldn't take on everybody. And the other reason that they were selective is because a disciple or a Talmud was going to follow that rabbi and learn everything. And he's basically saying, if I select this guy and he becomes a product of me, it's a saying about me as to whether this person turns out well or not. So they would only choose the best of the best. Now, in Jesus' day, there was also a classification of rabbi. There was a special rabbi that was known as a shmiha. Everybody say shmiha. Gesundheit. All right. Uh, Yeah. It's it's, it's a really cool Hebrew word. But what shmiha basically translates to is authority. There was rabbis and then there were shmiha rabbis who seemed to have this like special touch and anointing of God on them. That when they spoke, they had like special enlightenment or like mystical powers almost that people thought, man, these are like the cream of the crop rabbi's there. And so in order to be considered to be a shmiha rabbi, there was only about a dozen of them in Jewish history. Two of them were alive at this time, Hillel and Gamaliel. Now we know that Paul was a rabbi or a pharisee who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most well-known shmiha rabbis at that point. All right? But along comes Jesus. And what they had to do in order to be a shmiha or have authorities, they had to have very masterful enlightenment as to the scriptures, that when they spoke, everyone listened, and they felt as though this was God's word speaking to them, almost like prophet-like status. And they had enlightenment. They had revelation to what God was saying. It Also, they had to show evidence of being able to perform miracles in the name of God. They also had to have Shmiha status conferred upon them by the other Shmiha rabbis around as well. So what do we know about Jesus, though? Jesus, at 12 years old, what was he doing when his parents lost him? Jesus is at the temple teaching the rabbis as a 12-year-old teaching them. And what do they say about him? Who is this that is teaching with such authority, teaching with such shmiha? We've never heard anyone teach like this. If you go over just a few chapters from where we are in Matthew chapter 7, you'll see that one of the first times that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, everybody's response to his teaching is, who is he that can speak with this much shmiha?" Jesus is oozing with shmiha, and, and with 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 uh, with authority. We also see that when Jesus starts his ministry, when he's baptized, he goes and he he approaches John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is oozing with shmiha out there living in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, wearing animal skins, preaching that the the kingdom of God is coming and repent for the kingdom. He's just amassing all of these people. And as Jesus approaches, John the Baptist stops and he says, here comes one that is better than me and I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. And then what happens? He goes down in the water and he is baptized by John the Baptist and then a voice from heaven comes. It's the voice of God that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, all of a sudden, if you've got a dashboard and your Shmiha alert monitor is going off, it's like Shmiha, 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 this guy's got Shmiha. I know, no, you all, that's all you're gonna remember from today is me sounding like an idiot, right? This guy's got authority, man. This guy is special. So now bring it over to Matthew chapter four, what we just read. Jesus who everybody is like, man, this guy is special. There is no one who teaches. There is no one who is like him. He's performing miracles, and they're wondering, when are they going to call him a shmiha rabbi? When is he going to sit with Gamaliel? And when is he going to sit with all these people? And Jesus walks up to four fishermen, and he says, I want you to follow me. Now, what does that tell us about James and John and Peter and Andrew, if they're out there fishing? They didn't make the cut. Somewhere along the way, at 10 or at 17, they were sent packing back home because they had to learn daddy's fishing business. They were told, you don't qualify to be one of the religious leaders. You're not good enough. But here comes the greatest rabbi, the greatest teacher of all, with all authority from heaven, and he says, I want you. And this is what teaches us the very first thing that we have to get from this passage is this, and it's the first thing on your fill-in sheet this morning is that when Jesus chooses us, he doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. When Jesus chooses you, he's not going to choose the best. He's going to choose the willing. What's interesting about the boys, uh, the boys, uh, the, the guys here, and the way he calls them, in verse number 18, it says, Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother, Andrew, They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus is oozing with this authority. They didn't make the cut, but let this sink in with you and get this get this church. Jesus didn't choose the varsity team. He chose JV. And the other thing is this was a process that was completely reverse of what most people did. More than likely, some of these guys had gone to one of the rabbis and sat at the feet and the rabbi says, no, you're not good enough. Go fish for the rest of your life. Just go fish. They didn't come and sit at Jesus's feet. Jesus came to them and said, come to me. Jesus is a rabbi and Jesus is a leader and Jesus is a savior that is altogether different from anyone else. There is no one that is like Christ because he comes and calls you. You don't go to him and say, hey, will you come and let me follow you? I love the way that John MacArthur puts it in his book, 12 Ordinary Men. He says, God skipped all the wise people of the day. The great scholars that were in Egypt, the great library was in Alexandria, the great philosophers were in Athens, the powerful people were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian. He passed over Socrates, the great thinker, and he passed over Julius Caesar, the great politician. He chose men so ordinary that it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue leader. Half of them were fishermen. One was essentially an IRS agent and one was a former terrorist. This is who Jesus chose. Now, if Jesus can use fishermen, and if Jesus can use IRS agents, and if Jesus can use terrorists to change the world, what can he do with us? What can he do with his church? You see, Jesus chose the B team because his work in the world doesn't come from their abilities. His work in the world comes from what what he would do through them, not their abilities. You see, people with talent and people with ability, people with great skills and all of those things, they're really going to have a hard time getting in the way of Jesus. Because if we have a lot of strength to lean on, then that means we're going to lean on that before we come to the point where we realize, I have no other but Jesus. Jesus, you go before me. Jesus doesn't choose the most able. He chooses the most available. So God wants to use you. He wants to use your family. He wants to use this church, this little old church in Lexington, Kentucky, in in a in a little strip mall, on a little street, He chooses the little things to do the big things of the gospel. Don't let where you may be sitting or what you've been told you don't measure up to tell you a hill of beans for what you measure up to in the kingdom of God. Don't let it happen. So the question is not how able am I? The question is how available am I? The second thing that we have to understand from this is that he chose us first, not the other way around. Do you get that? He chose us first not the other way around. In verse number 19, he says, follow me. The first words that Jesus says to these people, the first words that are uttered in this narrative are Jesus calling out to them, follow me. Now, in case you're wondering, they knew that he was a rabbi because he had been dressed in the rabbinical clothes. They they dressed in certain clothes, so they knew who he was, and they knew what he was asking them to do. He was asking them to follow him and be his disciples. Jesus chose them not the other way around. See, the normal way all this went down was for a guy to come to one of the rabbis and say, hey, will you choose me? And then the rabbi would decide, do I want to choose you or not? But this is not the way that Jesus did it. Jesus chose them when they didn't even know they should be looking for him. Jesus chose them when they didn't even know he would be looking for him. reminds me of the verse. We love him because he first loved us, Right? Now, a lot of people would like to take this and use this to try to explain some idea that God has only chosen some to be saved and some to be lost, and he's holding some people out of heaven despite how much they may want him. Here's how election and all of that stuff works according to the word of God. Jesus chose us at the cross, and he says to everyone, follow me, and I will change you. And then it was up to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, will I follow And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. When Jesus chose everyone at the cross, he still leaves it according to us and whether we will choose him or not. That's the thing that was laid upon Peter, James, and John, and Andrew here and the rest of the disciples. Will you follow me? And they said yes, and they followed him. We don't see if Jesus asked some people and they said no. We only see that they say that they say yes. Jesus did the initiating and he did the choosing from the beginning. Now think of the confidence that's going to give them. Think of the confidence that it's going to give these disciples as they follow Jesus throughout, throughout that ministry. And after Jesus ascends into heaven and they're left to be the apostles that begin the church and to go on missionary journeys and all this, That fact that Jesus, the rabbi, the Shmiha of all Shmihas, chose me. It's kind of like if you've been going and playing pickup games over at Shillitoe Park and nobody picks you. You're always sitting out. But one day you get in, and you get to take some shots, and you're bricking threes, and you're doing all this stuff. And all of a sudden you come over after it's over with your wipe and sweat off and stuff. And Coach Cal is standing right there and said, look, I know that nobody likes you, but I see something in you. I'm going to give you a scholarship. Does it matter what those people on the court thought? No. Does it matter what Coach Cal had been smoking that day to give you the scholarship? No, you take that bad away and you, you ride it all the way to the final four. This is the thing. These guys have been passed over. And you may be sitting here this morning thinking, I've been passed over in life. I don't measure up to much. I don't have skills. I'm not smart. I'm not attractive. I've done too much in my life to really be used by God. Understand this. He doesn't, get, he doesn't care a hill of beans to what people think of you because he already knows who you are. And he says, your worth is insurmountable. It's so much that I was willing to give my life for you. And the people that we're afraid to talk to about the gospel, he died for them too. And their worth is insurmountable. And we need to get a sense of of their worth in Jesus's eyes, not just in ours. You see, he chose them. He chose us, not we chose him. So how does that apply to me today? the confidence that I can have as a follower of Christ because he chose me, that when life begins to get me down, when I'm feeling nervous, when I'm feeling feeling out of sorts, the fact that he chose me, worthless as I am, sinner as I am, weak as I am, makes a difference. John chapter 15, verse number 16 tells us this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And because I chose you, I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He'll give it to you. He said he's chosen us and he's appointed us for a time to bear fruit. Fruit that will hold up in time of a storm. That's what that fruit remaining means. Fruit that will not fall to the test of time and to the test of of things. Fruit that will remain. And a lot of times our confidence fails not because we don't think Jesus is able, but it's we don't think Jesus is going to come through on his promises. There's a difference. See, here's, let, me, let me explain this to you. There are some of you husbands right now who, who just know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if Jesus was married to your wife, he'd be doing a fantastic job. But you've lost sight of the fact that Jesus has chosen you to be that husband, and he wants to do a fantastic job through you. But you've lost confidence in Jesus, but you don't lose confidence in his ability. There are some of you wives who think the same thing. If Jesus were married to my husband... Or, or, or if, if, if he were parenting my kids, he'd be doing a fantastic job. But you've lost sight of the fact that he's going to do all of that through you. If you'll just give yourself to him. At work, you're thinking, man, if Jesus was an employee at my, if Jesus had my job, he'd be doing a bang-up job, not like me. But Jesus wants to do that through you. If Jesus were here witnessing, if Jesus were here pastoring, he'd be doing a much better job than me. But Jesus wants to do all that through us. See, we're fully convinced that Jesus is able We're just not fully convinced that he's going to do what he promised to do through us. See, he says, greater is he that is in you than what? Than he that is in the world. And he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you're saved, he started a good work. And that work was not finished the moment you said amen in the sinner's prayer. That work started there and it's going to be completed in heaven one day. There is work that he is doing in you and wants to do through you now. You see, so he chose us not the other way around. The next thing is our first calling in our life, his first calling is to be with him. Jesus, when he said, follow me, then I will make you fishers of men is very important. Jesus' first calling was for them to what? Follow him. Then as they followed him, what would happen? Then they would begin to fish for people. Jesus could have very easily come up and said, hey, y'all want to fish for people? Follow me. But that would have been backwards, wouldn't it? And this is the way a lot of of us are approaching our faith and our service to Jesus. We think that our following Jesus is defined by what we're doing for him. But it's the opposite way around. What we do for him is empowered by how closely we're following him. You get that? See, a lot of times, and this is what I thought a long time, for, uh, for a long time, I have a very legalist tendency in my life and in my way of thinking. I think that I have to be doing things, and then that makes me close to Jesus. It's the other way around. Jesus wants me to draw close to him first and foremost, and then he will use me to do things. And it won't be me doing the things. It will be him doing things, and I'm just along for the ride because my calling is not to do things. My calling is not to be Jesus. My calling is to be with Jesus while he works through me. And church, that's our calling. Our calling is to be with him. So the question is, how are you doing in being with him? Christ's primary call is not for us to do something for him. It's to become like him. See, there's no shortage of outlets If you want to be close to him today and if you want to learn about him, we have weekly services. We have midweek Bible studies. We have life groups. We have Sunday school classes. Sometimes we have special Bible studies that go on. There are opportunity after opportunity. We have discipleship groups that are trying to kick off as well. There is opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to draw close to him. But I want to ask you this. What are you doing on the days that are not programmatically provided for you by the church? drawing close to him every day. And the only way we draw close to him is to get at his feet, get in his word, and hear his voice. I firmly believe that many of our apprehensions as followers of Christ could be overcome if we would just spend time at his feet. This is why Psalm 4610 says, Be still and know that I am God. See, when we know that he is God and we know that he keeps his word and we believe that, there is nothing that can stop us. We'll charge, like like the old preacher said, we'll charge hell with a squirt gun, man, and not a super soaker. I'm talking about one of those little little ditties that you get at the Dollar Tree. Ten to a pack. Because when we're full of God and we're close to him, there's nothing that can stop us because there's nothing that can stop him. In Matthew 7, Jesus said there's going to be a lot of people one day. They're going to stand before him the last day and talk about all the things they did for him. They'll say, Jesus, haven't we healed people in your name? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we done all these amazing things for you? And Jesus will say, depart from me. And why? Not because those things weren't good enough. Why did he say it? Because I never knew you. You were too busy out there doing all those things, and you never took time to come to my feet and just trust me as your Savior. Don't let that be us. Trust him, come close to him, and then follow him. His measurement of us is by whether we know him or not. And that's the question for us today is do you know him? And then the, the other thing that we learn, the next point is, is that to follow him, we have to leave it all. To follow him, we have to leave it all. We can't hold anything back. We've got to bring everything to him and say, God, here it all is. Weed out what you don't want. Bring with you what you do want. I'm yours. I leave all. In verse number 22, it says, immediately. Immediately, that means immediate obedience. It tells us the timing of our obedience should always be immediate. It says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, if you mark in your Bible, underline the word immediately and then circle, boat and father. Why does Matthew note the boat and the father that they left? Why does he do that? Because this is the mark, first of all, of the disciple that we should obey him immediately. That the master calls, we listen. But why does, why does Matthew identify these two things? Because it's an important significance that Matthew wants us to see. So he says they left their boat. Well, what was their boat at this point? It was their occupation, it was their way of making a living. And for, for, uh, for, the, other, for the last two guys, it was their family business. They were training to take over the family business. So this was their future, this was their life. And he says, immediately they left their boat. They left behind what they knew to become something that Jesus knew that they would be in him. You get that? And then it says they left their father. Now, why is that significant? Because to follow Jesus sometimes means that we have to put those ultra important relationships on the back burner because our relationship with Jesus is the very most important thing. And that still sounds painful, doesn't it, to hear that? That my relationship, and the person, that, think of the person that you're closest to in this world. Jesus wants, to put, wants you to put that relationship on the back burner in favor of his relationship. Because when you have a proper relationship with him, all the other burners and the relationships that you've got going and all the other plates you've got spinning, all of those are brought into sync. And you are able to handle those in a better way. Jesus is saying, follow me. And he says, you got to leave your dad. Got to leave behind the family business. And there's Zebedee just sitting there going, okay, I guess I'll just pass this fishing business on to somebody else. It won't be Zebedee and son's fishing company anymore. It'll be Zebedee and friends as they leave. They left their father. Now, to follow Jesus, the disciples had to give pre- Jesus precedence over both their career and their closest relationships in life. See, most of us, we're not literally going to lose our jobs and we're not going to lose our families. Over Jesus. Because for a lot of us in this room, we may be second, third, fourth, fifth generation Christians. So coming to Christ, man, we just shared something new with people we were already close to. I remember the day that the girls got saved. Stacy and I, man, we, we celebrate because like we're no longer just your parents. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, man. That's awesome. But for some people, that's not the way it is. For some people in the Middle East who are raised in, in, in Islam and they convert to Christianity, which is happening, happening at an alarming rate, by the way. In, in Middle Eastern countries, their families decide they are going to shun them, and some of them decide, if it's, especially if it's their daughter, they decide, am I going to kill them? Are we going to disown them? What are we going to do with them? And so to follow Christ literally means leaving family behind. For some of you, it may not mean that, but for some of you, it may mean something different. For some of you, it may mean that the career that I have, that I'm going well, and Jesus one day maybe calls and says, hey, I want you to pack all that stuff up, pack the family up, and I'm calling you to be a missionary somewhere. He may do that. It's my prayer that he does do that. You may be thinking, stop praying that. But it's my prayer that he starts doing that here at Graceway, that he starts calling people to the mission field, that he starts calling people to preach, he starts calling people to plant churches out of here, to go and make disciples. You see, God may call us to do that, so some of those things have to be on the line. Like the student in school who says, hey, I'm going to follow Christ. And that's going to cost you some friends. Or it's going to cause people to make fun of you. Oh, you're following Jesus. You're sa- you're saving yourself from marriage. What are you, the Virgin Mary? And that becomes you're you're kind of like your, your uh your rep there at school. People want to make fun of you for that. Or for others, it has to do with your income. Around here, we believe that we should give because we've been given to. And that starts with the 10%. And for many people, that's the indication that you're fine with being a Christian, but you're still not ready to be a disciple because Still struggle with that. You still say, "I just can't trust God in that." You don't. You don't have any any reason to doubt that Jesus can and will do all things, but I just don't trust Him to do it for me. See, we never let God have our boat when we do that. You see, to follow Jesus means that you subject everything in your life to His lordship. So, to follow Him means we leave everything. And then, lastly, and quickly, the last thing we have to understand is. And when we follow Jesus, we have to understand that he commands us to spiritually reproduce. This is where we see Jesus say in verse number 19, he says, follow me. And then what happens? He says, I will make you fishers of men. The role of the disciple, the rabbinical disciple, the Talmud, which is what what these guys were being drawn into by Jesus, was to become exactly like the rabbi exactly like their master, to learn how their mannerisms, to learn how they walk, to learn how they talk. The greatest compliment that could have been given to a Talmud in those days was that you have the dust of your rabbi all over you, meaning you have the essence of your rabbi. When I talk to you, I feel like I'm talking to your rabbi, to be exactly like them. And that is what the disciples wanted to do with Christ. And here's what Christ said. I'm going to be a fisher of men. You're going to be a fisher of men. No longer are these fish in the sea. Well, interestingly enough, there will be some fish to deal with later on when there's about 5,000 hungry people, but you know what I mean. Um, he says, you're going to go and fish for men because I came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, so as the master did, the disciple does. Now, here's the question, church, or should I say group of disciples. What's different about their calling to be followers of Christ to our calling in 2020. There's absolutely zero difference. You may not be out fishing on the seashore one day. You may not be Peter or Andrew or James or John. You may be Derek, you may be Ryan, you may be Robin, you may be Linda. Doesn't matter who you are. He calls us all the same. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me as the rabbi. For I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your souls. This call is no different than it is to us. And he says, follow me and what? He didn't say, follow me, and I'll make you a great Christian thinker. He didn't say, follow me, and I'll make you one that can debate with all the people that are wrong on Facebook. He didn't say, follow me, and I'll make you someone who can... Do all these amazing things that everybody thinks is awesome? He says, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." So my question for you today is: If that's the measurement of a disciple, how well are we doing? Because if we're not being fishers of men, it's evidence that we're not following him. Do you get that reasoning? If we're not fishers of men, then we're not following him. He says this in in, in John chapter fifteen, verse eight: "My Father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and you prove to be my disciples." How do I prove to be a disciple? I bear fruit. I fish for men. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And, lo, I'll be with you always, even until the end of the world or even until the end of the age. You see, in KJV, it says, Go and teach. But in CSB, and it really translates to go and make disciples. That is what teaching is. It is discipling people. And in the Greek, the words go, baptize, and teach are all participles that derive their force from one controlling verb, and that is to make disciples. We go so that we can make disciples. And Jesus summarized his ministry in Luke chapter 19 by saying this, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and to save, which means he left us here to seek and to see them saved. And the statistics this morning tell us that we're missing the boat it brings me back to that question that, we, that I opened with this morning. As a church, what is at the core of who we are, of what we do, and where we're headed? What is the core of this? Because the answer must be that we are about fulfilling the Great Commission corporately by committing to making disciples individually, who then make disciples as well. Our church must make disciples who makes disciples. And the best way for us to do that is to keep our eye on the prize, that there are people who are dying every day all around us, and they need Christ. See, we divide our focus on a lot of other things. Big programs, having as many people in the worship service as we possibly can, which there's nothing wrong with that. But our greatest goal and our greatest task is to reach people for Christ. And the greatest way to do that is each one reaching one person. Here's the statistics that scare me. Here's the statistics. Paul Chitwood, president of the International Mission Board, says that we live in the most populous century in the history of humanity, where 155,000 people die lost every single day. By the end of this day, 155,000 people are going to die and go to hell. Let that sink in, 155,000. And the overwhelming majority of people in America become Christians before the age of 18. So we want to focus on those ages before, before, they, before they turn 18. This is why we have always, as a historical thing in our church, have always invested greatly in our children and in our youth because that's the time that they're most primed to come to know Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. By two, in 2018, only 58,000 people from 12 to 17 were baptized. That's one twentieth of one percent of the 25 million people living in the U.S. in that age range. Not even 1%. If you were to put it on a graph in PowerPoint, it doesn't even show up on the graph. Here in this area where we live, I serve in the Central Kentucky Network of Baptists as an ambassador. There's over 100 Baptist churches that we partner with for the sake of the gospel here in this area. There was a study done last year on our evangelistic reach. We saw in those 100 churches, we saw only over 500 baptisms. That's less than one-tenth of 1% of the over 500,000 people that live within our area, still not even making a mark. But every one of us, if all of the Christians, if all the churchgoers today were to say, hey, I'm going to make it a goal to reach one person, those numbers would astronomically skyrocket and change dramatically. And if that person had that passion to reach another and to reach another and to reach another, statistically speaking, the entire world would be evangelized in the course of eight years if we would just open our mouths and share. And I believe that the reason we have kind of gotten away from that is because we've not been doing a good job as the church in conveying the important message that the Great Commission is our job, is our central and sole mission here. So I want to close this morning by reading this quote from Robert Coleman. He says this, when will the church learn this lesson, that preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism? nor can occasional prayer meetings, training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, it's not a program, but it is someone, it is a disciple. The plan for reaching the world with the gospel of Christ is you. The plan for reaching the world with the gospel of Christ is me. The plan for reaching the world with the gospel of Christ is us opening our mouths and caring again about people who are lost. You are the follower of Christ. You are the one that God has chosen and called to be fishers of men. So to close out this morning, I want to ask you, and we are opening up a new series all month long, and it's going to be challenging. And some of you may not even like me by the time this is all over with. I can tell you this, I don't even like myself right now. God has revealed to me a great like, hole in my Christian life and the fact that I've lost the love for the lost like I need to have. And I'm praying to God that he'll bring it back. And he already is starting but I want to ask you this morning, how in the world are you? Are we going to see the world evangelism evangelized? All great movements start with one thing. They all start with the same thing, one step in the right direction. Think about that. All great movements in history have started with the same thing, one step in the right direction. So the question this morning is, how are we going to become a soul-winning, passionate, soul-conscious church? We're all going to take one step in the right direction. I'm going to ask you this. Would you pray this week? God, give me one person, lay one person on my heart that does not know Christ. And I'm going to commit to pray and to invest and to engage and to invite that person to church, to Christ, to take a step forward to Jesus Christ. And we're going to measure that this year as well. In your your seat, you have a prayer guide that you were given. Everyone has been given. I want you to take that with you today, March the 1st, all the way through March the 30th every day we're going to do this prayer God. It's very easy. It's one little page and it leads you through a prayer when you find that person, when that God lays on you that person, you begin praying these prayers together for that person. That means of all the people in this room, we're going to be praying for almost 100 people through our church to be saved. What would happen if 10% of those people got saved? What happened 20%? 5%? What happened if one person got saved? Bible says, heaven will rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance in Christ. And how much will you rejoice if God uses you to be the one that draws him in? You got that one in your head already? Write it down. In your Bible, write it down wherever it is. Next week, there's going to be a card sitting where that booklet was sitting, and it's going to have a name right there. It's going to be a blank for you to write that name, to turn in, and we're going to pray at this altar over all of those names. And then as a staff, we're going to be praying over all of those names on a daily basis. There's going to be a lot of things we're going to be doing to try to keep our eyes and our minds focused on the great commission that we're supposed to do. So as we bow our heads and as we close our eyes this morning.